Hello and welcome to the i3 Insights podcast. My name is Bouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. As you probably know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. The following recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to another edition of the i3 Investment Podcast. This is Daniel Grioli, Market Fox columnist for i3. With us today, we have a very special guest, Brian Singer. He is head of the Dynamic Allocation Strategy Team at William Blair, based in Chicago. Very interesting uh, guest. He'll tell us more about his background shortly. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Daniel. appreciate it. Good to be here. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. So we usually start off asking our guests a little bit about their background and how they got into finance. What's your story, Brian? It's an interesting story. As things go, fate often plays an important role. I went to uh, university in uh, Illinois, Northwestern University, and it turns out my economics advisor uh, was an individual I got very, very close to, and over time she introduced me to her husband as a summer intern, and then and that happened to be in the commodities space, believe it or not, in futures here in Chicago, before there were really any uh, any financial derivatives except for bonds. There was no S&P derivative, futures contract, or anything like that. But I worked there for a number of years and ultimately uh, discovered that macro – was the way that I really thought and, and what I really enjoyed and migrated over to ultimately multi-asset portfolios, and I've been doing that since 1990. Okay, that's that's a long time. So what was your first job uh, on the macro side of things? <laughs> Believe it or not, it was my first job was writing a book, and it involved going through a quantitative analysis of the seasonality of commodity futures contracts and exploring what seasonality was there, what may be driving that seasonality, and what one may be able to do with it if it's identifiable in any form or fashion. So originally quantitative, originally doing a lot of programming and focusing actually on uh, agricultural commodities, not on financials. Okay, that's interesting. How has the macro landscape changed over that time, or how have the ways in which investors use macroeconomic information changed? It's amazing how much it has changed. And, and I've observed this over my career. If I can look even prior to that, you observe the same type of thing. But since 1990, I would say that the big uh, change that has occurred in the macro space is thinking about things in terms of asset classes and multi-asset portfolios to where we are today thinking about risk categories and risk management or risk allocation as opposed to asset allocation. It's a transition that is still going on, but I believe that we are clearly in that in that risk arena now, much more so than we are in the asset class arena. 
I would agree, and you see that uh, even in in legislation here in Australia, institutional investors' uh, pension funds are now required by law to look at the underlying risks of their portfolios. Although the uh, the legislators, in their infinite wisdom, don't give much guidance on what that actually means. <laughs> you know, it's 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 interesting because it's hard to actually for anybody to pin it down. I do know that looking at the world today, and then back in the '90s, back in the '90s a client or prospect would ask me about diversification and say that they wanted diversification. And what that meant then was that they wanted exposure to something they weren't exposed to, such as uh, high-yield bonds or emerging market equities or something like that that were, would be new to the portfolio. Now, clients ask about diversification, and what we realize is that no one wants diversification when the market's going up. They only want diversification when the market's going down. And today, it means basically downside risk, protection against downside risk. More diversification is the same thing as saying, I I want downside risk management. And that's quite a change in in the way people actually use the word diversification from then to now. And it is reflective of that shift from asset classes over to to risk factors or risk categories uh, in portfolios. I think that's an important observation because we throw words around like diversification and we almost assume implicitly that we're all talking about the same thing. And your your comment there brings out the point that what we're talking about may be different, may also change over time. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, and we are, in some sense, in a period of transition. We're in the early stages of thinking about the world from a dynamic risk capital allocation perspective. And in that transition, uh, the the jargon isn't fixed. And words are used in many, many different ways. And it really is difficult in the industry, even for veterans who've been in it for a long time, uh, to understand exactly what's being communicated without asking a lot of questions. Okay. So coming back to your, your background, how did you end up from the, the world of commodities uh, to William Blair? What were some of the things that happened in, in between on that journey? Yes, it was an interesting time in the 90s. There was a lot of consolidation of the industry, and many of the firms that I worked for were simply bought out by other firms. And ultimately, I found myself at a at a uh, primary bond dealer, a primary dealer, and that was Continental Bank here. And when I was at Continental Bank, as it, 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 when I was there, I was much more focused on the trading of bonds and bond derivatives, in particular options, at the time. And then it was really pretty basic. It was caps and floors and collars, basically capping an interest rate or putting a bottom a floor on an interest rate or, or creating some type of boundary above and below as a collar collar would be. And that was really my first major introduction to to financial derivatives and it kind of went from there. Okay. So who were your early mentors starting out? <laughs> you know, I'd have to point to to early mentors as I got into the industry and thinking about it from a macro investment perspective. And you know when you when going through and doing research, even when I was an undergraduate, I was 
actually researching into Harry Markowitz and understanding this concept of an optimal portfolio. When I got out of undergraduate and actually began working and then studying it in graduate school, I became much more focused in on, on individuals like um, uh like uh, in terms of derivatives, Black, Scholes, uh, and Sharp in terms of capital asset pricing model, which in my mind was a much more kind of macro concept back then. And ultimately, when I got into the industry from a practitioner perspective, in 1990 was when I joined a firm called Brinson Partners here in Chicago. It was ultimately acquired by Swiss Bank and then, and then UBS. But Gary Brinson, the, the founder of, of Brinson Partners, uh, was very much a mentor for me, as was the primary individual there focused on asset allocation, a man named Dennis Karnowski. Those are the two individuals, Gary Brinson and Dennis Karnowski, who are really the mentors that I would observe, in, practitioner mentors that I would really observe in, the, in, in my career, in my past. That's, uh, that's interesting. So we all know of Gary Brinson from that famous paper, what was it like working with uh, Gary and his team at the early stages when they were putting together what has since become some of the most uh, cited and famous research in finance? It was fantastic. I literally, uh, it was a wonderful opportunity, not just with that paper, but that paper was indicative of a broader uh, relationship where we would often find ourselves in the office on weekends arguing about various aspects of finance and it was it was just a wonderful experience to be able to have that back and forth dialogue and, and learn along the way and this was simply an example of that where um, you know, realistically it was it was Gary Brinson and Gil B Bauer and uh, Randy Hood who kind of formulated that approach to doing performance analysis and then we went uh, a second step uh, later with another article it wrote that to apply it in a much broader fashion and it, you know it was something new to me and thinking about the the performance of a portfolio and slicing it and dicing it up into the decisions that you actually make or the decisions that you can make in a portfolio uh, was was exciting and it kind of I understood from that point forward that anything that was pretty much new I was quite excited about especially if it had any uh, any credibility to it academic uh, credibility to it uh, and theory behind it and that was really kind of the first big thing as a macro investor that I got in, uh, involved in and it was fantastic it was just as fun as it could be we're definitely going to talk more about that research in a moment but first I just want to circle back to a, a choice of words that you made that I'm curious about because you use the word that we get there in, on weekends and we'd argue. Do you think it's important to have proper collegiate argument in an investment team and how do you do it? Sure. I, I think it's critical in, in fact and it's very difficult for that to become a standard aspect of a team. Some would say discuss, some would say argue. In the end, the key is to be able to express uh, dissenting views without ramification. And other than just purely the, the uh, logic or the correctness or lack of correctness of that, of that argument. But that becomes difficult often 
you know, there is a desire to say yes to the boss, to agree with the boss, and ultimately saying no to the boss, I disagree with you in this in this aspect of, let's say, analyzing performance. Uh, being able to say that is something that ultimately I, as a leader, need to reward um, and encourage so that I do get dissent along the way and I don't end up having a lot of people uh, just agreeing with me. And that's kind of why I use the term argue as opposed to discuss. I really want the disagreement aspect to come out. As one of my colleagues colleagues said once recently, what we want is not constructive criticism, we want destructive criticism. <laughs> and, uh, and in some sense, that's actually true. I don't want anybody to hold back. And, and that's the important aspect of it. And that's kind of why I often use the word argue as opposed to just discuss. I've been very, very lucky. Uh, we've been together on average about 18 years. And in you know, those are behaviors that we now have as part of our culture. And as we bring new people in, they quickly see that as part of the culture. It takes them a little bit to get comfortable with it, but it's so deeply embedded in who we are as a team now that it, it makes it easier when we bring new people in. There's nothing to change. <laughs> it's just becoming a part of it. That's that's very good. I think that word argue has, has taken on a purely negative connotation uh, recently but it it did have that meaning of passion debate which is i guess what you're referring to absolutely absolutely i mean if someone's disagreeing they better disagree because they really believe it and can can support what they're what they really believe and that's where it becomes you know passion in in, in terms of of they really hold it as as the correct thing and they're willing to stand up for that very good so coming back to the, the Brinson, Bebauer and Hood paper, it's probably one of the most quoted and misquoted papers in all of finance. <laughs> this is a pet peeve of mine. Um, as, as you knew the authors and were there at the time that this was being worked on, what does it really mean? You know, you're absolutely right. It is kind of funny when when I think about how frequently it is misquoted. And the way it's typically misquoted is when people say something along the lines of more than 90% of a portfolio return is due to its asset allocation. And, okay, the problem with it is it never studied return. It studied the variation of returns. And the point of this being that it was the ups and downs or the variations of return uh, the risk and effect that could be described by the asset allocation. And the asset allocation was the strategic or policy asset allocation as well as any active asset allocation that was occurring in the portfolio. And over the years, you know, because of that misquoting of it, uh, there are other papers that have been done. I think one of the better ones out there that has come out over the years was actually by two individuals, Roger Ibbotson and Paul Kaplan. Uh, Ibbotson is at Yale, and he had his own firm here, uh, uh, Ibbotson Associates, I think that was ultimately sold to Morningstar. But in 2001, those guys wrote an article that looked at it in a number of different ways, from a return variation uh, perspective, from a return uh over, uh, return variation over time, return variation across managers, as well as just return in and of itself. And I think that's probably the best article now after kind of uh, having more data to work with and uh, knowing 
that you want to explore a number of different things now that you have that data, that's a very good article. And then uh, ultimately, uh, another one which I, I like was one that uh, I, I actually co-authored with Renato Staub, uh, whom I work with. The thing about the Brinson and Ibbotson articles is they actually explore what people did, what investors did. And that's different from saying what's actually available to investors in the marketplace. And when you look at it from the perspective of what could investors do, that's yet a different answer. And in that instance, you do really find that there are a lot of systematic aspects of a portfolio, and those are macro decisions much more than they are bottom-up security selection issues. That was kind of what we were looking at, and we see it now manifest in the industry as people, as we've already discussed, look at risk factors, uh, these systematic risk factors that they can allocate to in por- portfolio. So it's, uh, it is one of the most often misquoted. It, it remains one of the most often misquoted articles, although I try to catch it every time I can. And I think there's some good follow-ons after that from Ibbotson and Kaplan and then again from uh, Renato Staub and, and me. Well, thanks for clarifying that. Uh, your, your comments about macro risk factors um, gave me a, a thought, and that is that the number of potential macro risk factors that somebody can look at is probably theoretically infinite. But in your experience, is there a an 80-20 rule dynamic? You know, are there a handful of macro factors that rule the majority of outcomes? And if so, what are they? Yes, it, it, it's interesting. You can look at about any portfolio and... In the end, if it has you know, 30, 40, 50 securities, whatever the case may be, it ultimately only has about two, three, maybe four bets in it. Uh, that's it. And the way that that is analyzed is something known as principal component analysis, or one way that's analyzed. And it basically finds out how many uh, systematic aspects there are in a portfolio and how m- much of the portfolio's return variation or covariance is actually explained by those factors. And in the end, you can basically look at about any portfolio and ultimately it is exposed to a few risk factors, regardless of what's all the security selection and everything uh, going on in the portfolio. Are there ones that are persistent in nature? Uh, I think there are. there's one uh, that is persistent in nature and that's the market, uh, beta to the market. Uh, that's the non-diversifiable risk, ultimately non-diversifiable risk in a portfolio, and that persists whether or not uh, uh, investors are trying to capture it. And that's different from a lot of the other risk factors that people look at, like value versus growth or the Fama French kind of. They started off in in big terms with the uh, with the Fama French model, a three-factor model. And they identified three factors in terms of value and size uh, as as part of that. And now, and and the and the broad market. So those were kind of the three uh, that they looked at. And then it expand, went to the expanded to the Pharma French four factor, and then the Pharma French Carhartt. I think his was the fifth factor uh, that uh, that they added to it. And now there is a proliferation of factors. However. I don't believe that those factors are necessarily unique or mutually exclusive or independent from each other. 
for example, a high-dividend portfolio is probably a lower-risk portfolio as well. And if you invest in a factor high-dividend and you also invest in a factor called uh, low volatility, you're probably getting a lot of overlap in there. They're both measuring something very, very similar uh, indirectly. Or one may be the right direct one and the other one is proxying for it. We don't really know what the case is. And now that we have hundreds, thousands of factors out there, I suspect it boils down to when all is said and done, there may be half a dozen <laughs> out there that are, are truly uh, unique in some form or fashion. And those, however, as more and more people learn about them, uh, can be, in fact, arbitraged out of the system, uh, unlike the one primary factor, the one primary component, which is the market portfolio. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Your your comments bring to mind the debate between uh, Rob Arnott at Research Affiliates and Cliff Asnes at AQR and, and Rob's work on the valuation of factors over time and his assertion that many of them have become more expensive and that's actually accounted for a large part of the return. Um, do you have a view on that or is that something you look at? Yeah, it, it, you know, it's interesting. Rob as well has been around the block a few times in terms of, of market cycles. He's He's seen ups and he's seen downs. And I think one of the most uh, astounding ones that unfortunately there aren't that many people old enough in the industry to remember was in the late nine, uh, late 80s uh, and then basically collapsing on into the early 90s when Japan, the Japanese equity market rallied so much and it became such a large percentage of a global equity index that we began to, we, the industry began to explore things like GDP weighted indices. And that was a way of basically constraining that, that one uh, big element of a portfolio. And suddenly the, with that, people began to question what market cap actually meant because here was a situation in Japan where it was clearly a bubble uh, but a passive portfolio that invested in a global equity index had a huge percentage of it in that one country, even though everybody knew it was over, not everybody, even though many investors uh, opined that it was overvalued. And that's, I think, strong foundation for the type of thing that Rob Arnott uh, ultimately came up with, which was the uh, RAFI portfolios, the fundamental indexes, where he's looking at a concept more of value than a price and building a portfolio or building a a some a, a kind of a benchmark or a passive exposure based on that rather than just on on market cap and that's fine i think that's not a bad thing to do however I think our industry is, generally speaking, paid as active investors to identify something like Japan as a misvaluation and not own it because it is a misvaluation rather than compel non-ownership through some type of GDP-weighted index. Similarly, in terms of an active portfolio in equities, I would suspect that I you know, we're hired as we're not bottom up. We're not a bottom up equity manager, but but generally speaking, uh, bottom up equity managers are hired to avoid things that are, in fact, 
uh, overvalued that are in fact potential bubbles in a portfolio and to avoid those things in in uh, in terms of seeking alpha in, in the portfolio so I, I see the motivation that's out there i think it's not bad motivation i think it's fine um, but i think it's what we were paid to do in the first place and i'm not really necessarily comfortable with compelling uh, that on investors and and that's that's the i guess important consideration from my perspective and i think cliff in terms of his work in in risk parity and other other areas is is perhaps more flexible in in identifying uh, factors that are comp compensated out there through various quantitative models or in risk parity where there's purportedly a premium to um, to leverage because other people just don't do it other investors just don't do it um, and and that's you know kind of a different take on it uh, in the end I kind of look at it and say it's it's active management of a portfolio it can be compulsory or not and my preference is that it not be compulsory and that's kind of what we're paid to do I, I think there's an interesting nuance in what you're just saying and if I understand you correctly, it's this, that whether you're using a set of rules or making decisions, you're still making decisions because you have to decide what that set of rules is. Absolutely the case. And it gets very, very broad. The S&P 500 is a set of rules. It's an active portfolio defined by a set of rules that is basically U.S. only, no non-U.S. securities, large cap securities. Generally speaking, you find a little bit of a growth orientation there because those are the ones that grew into the index and not the ones that collapse out of the index. There's a little bit of a tendency there uh, to be the case. In the end, there's only one passive portfolio, and that is the entire global capital market, including your own human capital, which is basically something that becomes imminently unmeasurable <laughs> and very difficult to, to, to work with. Anything smaller than that is an active portfolio, whether it's defined by a set of rules or not, and it can get narrower and narrower down to what we have today, these smart beta portfolios, which are a very narrow set of rules to define uh, what is ultimately a, uh, a, a not very well diversified portfolio because these rules define it very narrowly. Okay. So one more question on uh, the Brinson, Bebauer and Hood paper and its implications, and then we'll move on to dynamic asset allocation. And the question is this, if asset allocation is so important, and you can we can be talking about importance in terms of risk or return or in any of the papers that you mentioned, why do most institutional investors spend 20 to 30 times as much on fund managers as they do on their investment consultants? I know, it's amazing. And, uh, you know, in the end, it's 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 a conundrum in the in the industry that really maybe you could boil down to to short termism. Um, asset allocation, in and of itself, in a strategic or policy perspective, a static perspective, is designed to meet long term objectives. It's not designed to meet something this week or even this year. It's designed to meet something that has long that you're focused on over the long term. Then we begin to bring in tactical asset allocation and things like that. And that is 
basically designed to dodge things like Japan in the late 90s. Uh, and that's fine. I think it's, it's valuable in doing that. But often investors look at something like dodging the dot-com bubble or Japan in the late 80s as too long-term. You know, that's not what uh, we want. We want quarterly outperformance, not this kind of longer-term thing. And as a macro investor doing asset allocation, there's not a lot in an asset class perspective that you have to work with. You've got U.S. equities, non-U.S. equities. Generally speaking, they can be defined in many ways. Uh, U.S. bonds, non-U.S. bonds, emerging equity, emerging debt, and credit. Okay, you've got seven of them out there. And then you can go to illiquid assets if you want. Building a portfolio like that necessarily has more variation in it uh, that's driven by those factors than a broadly diversified portfolio of equities, which basically will move predominantly up and down with the index. Uh, over time, there's been a good bit of research that would say that tactical allocation doesn't work and security selection uh, does work. I, I don't really buy that argument for a number of reasons, one of which I already mentioned, in terms of what investors can do as opposed to what they actually do um, and what actually is systematic in a portfolio, even if it's bottom-up, there are really just a few systematic elements to it, which could be considered macro, or maybe even as time passes now, we're seeing as risk capital allocation, things that you would allocate risk capital to. Um, but in the end, I, I think it's just uh, the case that in many instances, investing is really about the long-term and the execution becomes really about the short term and consultants provide a good bit of of information knowledge uh, experience about the longer term aspects of it and that's really really valuable but you don't feel like you're doing anything if you're hiring a consultant to deliver for you over the next 10 to 20 years you really feel like you got to do something right now justify your existence and that means spending a lot more money on other things out there and a lot less ultimately on the things that really matter in terms of meeting long-term objectives. It's disappointing, but it's been that way for the last almost 35 years I've been in the industry and, uh, you know, it's probably not going to go away anytime soon. No, I, I agree with you that there's definitely an urge to do something. And I think it's a, it's an incentives problem. I think there's a almost a contradictory set of incentives because there's the one incentive for um, institutions, I guess, as fiduciaries, not to do anything stupid that'll get directors in court. So that argues in favor of copying everybody else's 70-30. But then you've got the incentive to try and outperform uh, either to gather assets or for other reasons, and that argues in favor of trying to stuff the 70-30 with lots of active managers and try and win by picking better ones. And I think it's the yeah. combination of those two incentives that, that keeps it going. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. And and if you do stick your neck out as a as a a manager of a portfolio under a board or under trustees, uh, sticking your neck out by making a significant asset class decision uh, is a lot more painful than making just as 
large a size position in an individual stock or bond relative to a benchmark because the ones relative to a stock uh, global equities or relative to global bonds ultimately are diversified quite effectively. However, if you just decide you're going to take a large position on emerging markets, suddenly yours may be the head that pops up above the trench in the middle of a, of a battle. And that's not the head you want to have. The other one is you, you find yourself in a chain of agents. And basically, the, the, I like to say that the, the trustee with the shortest investment horizon dictates the investment horizon of the fund itself. And, uh, and that's often true, but it's really uh, in this chain from from uh, client to consultant to advisor, uh, portfolio or investment advisor, um, all of those things to the career of the person managing the portfolio and all of it. It's the, really the shortest horizon across that spectrum that dictates the horizon of the investing that goes on in a portfolio. And that's really the travesty. It becomes driven by... Uh, career risk, and and really, unfortunately, not a lot more than that. That's a great truism. I'll have to remember that one, that the person with the shortest investment horizon is the weakest link in the principal and agent chain. It yep. doesn't matter if somebody has a longer horizon. <laughs> it just, just doesn't matter. <laughs> okay, so let's move on now to your bread and butter, dynamic asset allocation. Now, a question that comes up often when I've had discussions with people about dynamic asset allocation is they look at me with this quizzical look as if I'm trying to pitch the market timing by a different name. Are they the same? Are they different? What What are your thoughts? Yeah, I would say they're, they're different. And I recently wrote a chapter for the a book uh, that the CFA Institute uh, published earlier this year that does talk about what I think is the important difference between tactical asset allocation and dynamic asset allocation. Dynamic asset allocation, from my perspective, is longer term in nature, and it focuses on what something is fundamentally worth and taking advantage of things that are priced different from what they're fundamentally worth. It's looking at what something is worth today, what its price is today, and then positioning for that price to converge on fundamental value over time. Tactical asset allocation is something that I tend to think of as a as really based on a prediction about what something will do, the U.S. equity market, for example, over the coming quarter or over the coming month or whatever the time horizon is. It typically is shorter term in nature, but it's price forecast oriented rather than price value discrepancy oriented. And that's, I think, when I think about it, the big distinction. But it does mean that tactical is shorter term in nature and dynamic is longer term in nature. I think tactical has also gotten a bad name, um, probably much uh, worse than it is warranted out there. Again, I've been around a long time and I've seen the pendulum swing back and forth where Asset allocation is something that everybody thinks is important and they need to do, and then it's something that nobody can be successful at, and then it comes back to something that can be more important and what everybody needs to do, and then it becomes less important again. That pendulum just swings back and forth, and actually now I believe it is shifting back toward um, the macro aspect of a portfolio like asset allocation, and it's becoming, rather than 
uh, dynamic asset allocation. It really is becoming dynamic risk capital allocation. This incarnation of macro is focused on risk more than it's focused on asset classes, but it's the same pendulum swinging back and forth over time. It makes progress, but it does go back and forth. <laughs> how, how long does each swing take? Are we talking five years, ten years? Uh, you know, it's kind of funny. In, in my mind, I think it it ultimately takes about 10 to 15 years. 15 years is maybe uh, is the type of thing that you see out there in, in the industry. Okay. Uh, that's that's interesting. I like your comments about uh, the DAA being focused on the discrepancy between price and value and TAA being focused more on anticipating value. I think that's a very useful distinction to remember. It helps me, and I think it's, you know, I am asked the question frequently, and I think there is a distinction in the mind of market participants uh, across the board, any basic uh, aspect of the investment decision. And the key is to try to put your finger on exactly what those people, the industry as a whole, has in mind when it uses dynamic and when it uses tactical. And this is about the best summary statement that I can come up with, given what I've, I've heard and seen out there in the industry. Well, I, I think it's a good one. So you've, you've described your process and your focus on fundamental value. At the same time, we know, and you mentioned Mark Carhart earlier in our conversation about factors, we know that momentum dominates in the short term. So how do you reconcile those two results the the need to yeah. focus on fundamental value but the recognition that momentum dominates at least in the short term yeah momentum is basically a lot more focused on timing of the investment decision which is important even if you're a fundamental investor you just don't want to look at something and say is it it's expensive and and sell it because it could get a lot more expensive uh, in the way to it's ultimate reversion toward fundamental value and considerations like momentum are important in the timing of strategy implementation in a portfolio saying that we're fundamental for example does not preclude our consideration of things like momentum because ultimately it is a timing decision we have to be right on that timing and we do have to take advantage of every single piece of information that we have out there and any short-term momentum is an important piece of information to take into account I'm not sure that everybody would necessarily do that it's my belief however that is an important aspect of any portfolio management even fundamental value oriented okay that's that's interesting. So, moving on to something slightly different. Uh, a couple of months back, I was lucky to have uh, the chance to sit down and chat with Jeremy Grantham about many of the, uh, these topics. And one of the questions we discussed was mean reversion and the fact that for most of his career, it tended to work in a nice orderly fashion. Um, now, not so orderly anymore. Do you think mean reversion is broken? Does it still work? Or has the mean shifted? And how would we tell if the mean has shifted? Yes, I, I would say it has been precluded from working um, since the global financial crisis. However, over the long term, it will work. And 
the I will uh, in terms of nuance here. I'm not a fan of mean reversion um, as a as a way to invest because reverting to a mean is reverting to something that has happened in the past, and you can calculate a mean from that. That's very good if there's no structural change in a marketplace. There's no structural change such as uh, an industrial revolution or now an information technology revolution that is changing the world around us and changes the types of means that we look at. And I think investing today, even in a more kind of macro orientation, when you look at geopolitical instability, the mean that I think you would want to take into consideration is the mean that existed somewhere between 1900 and 1932, because that's really a more representative type of environment in terms of debt, central banking, geopolitics, um, political polarity, a number of aspects back at that time. So I, I just feel like mean reversion is looking through the rear view mirror as opposed to some concept of value reversion where value takes into account the investor's best estimate of how structural change may in be uh, changing the value of an asset or the value of an asset class. Now, that's a nuanced distinction because often there's not a big difference between the two. It's just when there is some type of secular change, regime shift, that uh, that I find that the mean reversion concept is, is problematic. Okay. Uh, again, that's another very useful distinction, I think, for investors. So if I, if I understand you correctly, mean reversion tends to match that sort of reversion to value in a steady state environment but in an environment that's more dynamic the structural changes create a mismatch and so focusing on mean reversion can get you into trouble potentially is that kind of what you're saying you know i wish i had actually said it that well but that is not only kind of what i was saying and i think you said it a lot better in it's the much current easier <laughs> when i get to listen to you first <laughs> Uh, what's interesting, though, about the world we live in today, and and this is what Jeremy sees as well. I mean, he's he's got just tremendous experience uh, in the industry and through many market cycles. What I believe is that it, when the global financial crisis hit, central banks stepped in, not just one central bank, the Federal Reserve, but basically a significant portion of the world's economy – with the uh, Fed, the ECB, the Bank of England, Bank of Japan, and through PEG, People's Bank of China, and even beyond that, um, we have manipulation of interest rates. Central bank manipulation of interest rates is manipulation of asset prices. And when central banks are that powerful of a player, the marginal player, the marginal investor, the price-setting investor in assets, it is very difficult for fundamentals to exert themselves sufficiently to bring prices back toward fundamental values. It is my belief, my opinion, my hypothesis that what has made it so difficult for fundamental investors or mean reverting uh, oriented investors is that that normal process has been short circuited and it will be short circuited until central banks begin to pull back from these ultra easy monetary policies. And we're beginning to see that in the U.S. But until that happens, it's a difficult situation. And it's one of the reasons why, if you look at the performance of value versus growth, 
whether in the U.S. or globally, uh, that value has underperformed growth since the global financial crisis. It is a statement in my mind or, or a, uh, a symptom, of, uh, an aspect of central banks actually manipulating asset prices to the detriment of fundamentals. Okay, that's, that's very interesting. So thinking more about DAA, many institutions think of dynamic asset allocation or DAA as taking a plus or minus 5 or 10% position around their growth versus defensive asset target. Is that enough to make a difference? Um, it, it's enough to make a difference at the margin. Um, however, it's really something that's, I think, not sufficient. And, you know, historically, we've talked a lot about tracking error. And uh, and that's been um, a something that ultimately has, has drawn people closer and closer to the index. Whereas now, there's this concept of active share, uh, which seems to be trying to get at investors that are willing to deviate in, in a somewhat different measure away from the ben- benchmark. The important thing being that active share is used as a concept to think about how far somebody's going from the index as opposed to how close they are going to the to the index. And if they're not moving far away from an index, they're really just going to be brought into a broader portfolio and become nothing more than expensive replication of the market portfolio. For example, if a portfolio, if an advice, I'm sorry, if a, uh, a pension plan or whatever has uh, you know, ten equity managers out there, and all those equity market equity managers are taking positions in uh, you know hundred different stocks around the world, in the end you've got a thousand different stocks around the world, and you're looking pretty much like the market looks. However, if you have uh, investors that are investment advisors that are taking much larger positions, not just the plus five and minus five, but much larger positions in the portfolio, then when you bring 10 of them together, they're actually not diversifying themselves into just a market portfolio. They actually have positions that will sustain themselves through that consolidation across these 10 managers and ultimately have the potential to generate good or bad performance. I mean, that's the risk side of it. Um, and I, from, from that perspective, I believe that a lot of these smaller moves just aren't that valuable. However, I do very much realize that they are career-protecting moves. And in many instances, you know, focusing on that trustee with the shortest time horizon it's better not to be the one poking your head up above the trench in the middle of a battle. Better to stay below the trench and take smaller positions rather than take larger positions. So I see the incentives that lead to it. It's just that it's ultimately not in the client's best interest in a more broadly diversified portfolio. Okay, very good. So again, on dynamic asset allocation or market timing, there's that classic study that William Sharp uh, wrote many years ago uh, where he looked at a very basic market timing strategy, probably not one that any investor would use. But from that, he concluded that you needed to be right at least 80% of the time on your calls to break even. Do you think that's necessarily correct? Do you need to be, do you need that level of accuracy? Um, And if not, what's a, a reasonable expectation for a 
a dynamic asset allocation process to work? It it is interesting. I think it. Um, I, I don't know if the percentage is eighty percent or fifty one percent or or whatever it it is. Uh, if there are fees out there, you've got to be right more often than not, um, and you also have to be able to manage things that are working correctly and allow those to work correctly where at the same time things that are not moving correctly to cut them off and that's something that doesn't come up in a measure of 80 percent or 51 percent or or anything you might be wrong more often than not but quite capable of shutting those positions down and allowing the less frequent correct decisions to actually carry the day in in a portfolio so I, I, I understand that analysis. I'm not sure um, I would uh, fully buy into it. Uh, however, I do might very much believe it's more than 50%. I just don't know how much more than 50%. Um, the other thing that is interesting about all of this in terms of, of fundamental investing is that ultimately modern portfolio theory is a single period model. It's today and the end result. And Effectively, when I think about the capital asset pricing model as a broad theory, it has similar uh, structure to it as a single period model, and it's the outcome and the covariances of those outcomes that ultimately become important, not the day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, quarter-to-quarter variation between now and then. That's a very different concept. And when people test the capital asset pricing model, and in that testing, they find that it doesn't work when they look at monthly returns, I'm not really sure it was ever supposed to work. A month is not any any time period where ultimately equilibrium makes a lot of sense. Um, and in that perspective, I think understanding what the capital asset pricing model is and how it works is a much, much longer-term type of evaluation and doesn't boil down to whether you were right 80% of the time from here to there. Ultimately, it's about what's the end result that comes about. That said, path matters, and it's very, very important, especially after the global financial crisis, to investors. And in terms of being right, I think ultimately what will be more valuable not to say how many asset allocation decisions it takes to be correct, but more how many risk capital allocation decisions it takes to be correct. And that will be an ultimately interesting question to answer because dynamic risk capital allocation is about path. It's not about end result. And I think that's kind of where a lot of this research will ultimately go over time. Okay, that was three very interesting points I got out of your response. Uh, The first one was that a good investment process creates an asymmetry between winners and losers, and that's often not captured in backtests of things like um, market timing. The second was that you've got to use the right kind of analysis for the right kind of question. So if you're analyzing longitudinal decision-making using tools best described for single-period decisions, of course it's going to say that one or the other doesn't work because you're using the wrong tool to measure the wrong thing. And the final point was that that last statement you made about the increasing emphasis not just on what the return is but on the path to getting there. And um, 
I'd like to ask you a little bit more about that final point, that the importance of the path. What are some of the things that you're seeing in the industry in terms of how people are thinking about that path and working with that path and communicating to their, their clients or members the importance of focusing on that path, not just the the total return number? You know, there are certain things that have happened to people over time that simply change uh, their behavior until the day they die. Um, my parents were fine, you know, no great monetary issues there by any stretch of the imagination. However, when they would cook a baked potato in aluminum foil, they would take the aluminum foil off, serve the baked potato, and then use that aluminum foil again <laughs> the next time they made a baked potato. Um, and that's just something that became part of them as they lived through the, the, the depression. Um, I think that to a much, much smaller degree, the global financial crisis has had a, an impact on behavior. And that behavior is about path. And there were a lot of investors that ultimately felt like they were well prepared for retirement or investors that felt like they were very well funded against their liabilities. And that leads to interesting behaviors, even at the individual level, where people will go ahead and buy the house that they plan on retiring in and finding ultimately that they can't afford that house when the market goes down. And the global financial crisis was a, just an incredible shock, uh, especially here in the U.S., where real estate was the bubble. And this was an important setback to that very important aspect of people's liabilities or their retirement, ultimately. After that, what I observe is that investors are much more sensitive to path. They're much more sensitive to downside in particular. They want asymmetric returns. They think they can get them for free, <laughs> but it doesn't always work that way. What they basically are expecting is free insurance against a fall in the market, but unfortunately, any insurance you have to pay premiums for. Um, but that's a big, big shift. And I think that is really driving a lot of the focus on path right now. And the research in, in how to manage portfolios to an acceptable path and the way portfolios are actually being structured, a lot of factor-based portfolios, risk-parity, not risk-parity, uh, smart beta portfolios that are thought to be uh, less risky because they have better path uh, exposures than a lot of other portfolios. And I don't know that that's going to necessarily be a smooth uh, transition out there, but it's definitely something that, that uh, is, is important in the industry from a behavioral perspective. And we see changes in the way portfolios are managed, and we're seeing changes in the research and analysis behind all of that, in part because of that change in behavior. And it, I don't think it's going to go away. It's one of those things that I think a lot of investors will carry through them. A lot of baby boomers in the developed world will carry through them uh, all the way up in, until the grave. That's a, that's a very interesting observation. Uh, I think it's also a challenge for the industry because uh, a lot of it hasn't thought enough about that path issue. <laughs> And so it's a, it's a challenge, but also an opportunity to create new and, and better strategies to help people deal with, with those issues. 
I think it very much is. It's like all things, it's a challenge, and at the same time, it's an opportunity. Uh, it's always the flip side of the same coin, and there'll be a lot of mistakes made along the way as the industry uh, slowly improves in its capability to do these types of things. Okay. I I wanted to ask you very briefly about a, an interesting book that you wrote, Investment Leadership and Portfolio Management, The Path to Successful Stewardship for Investment Firms. It's an interesting book, has some good ideas on how to structure an asset management business. I found it very helpful. Where did the idea for, for the book come from? Um, it, it's interesting. It, it really popped out of, of a very important short period of, uh, from me as a, as a leader, and that was uh, the integration of three firms in the end uh, where there was a Brinson Partners that had been bought by Swiss Bank, and then the UBS had had this entity in in I think it was UBS in in the UK in London called Phillips and Drew, and then there was the Swiss entity. Ultimately, we ended up with these three entities: Brinson Partners, Phillips and Drew, and Swiss Management of, of Investment Management. And I referred to them ultimately as the three tribes. And I had three tribes in my team. And I had to figure out how to actually lead uh, three t- tribes as a single unit. And you can't. You need to have them all as one tribe. And that was very fundamental in, in my thinking because um, I learned first that the most important aspect of any investment team is is culture. And I think that's the type of thing that, that Ray Dalio often says, is the importance of, of culture at, at uh, Bridgewater. And I think it is true. And, and not every person is suitable for every different culture. But the culture is is a critical aspect of, of leading a team. And ultimately, you can't dictate a culture. The culture is something that emerges over time, and that dictates behaviors. And And it's important to realize that the culture changes first, and everything else follows on. What I then had to do when we had the three tribes was come up with a way of, of ultimately slowly evolving that to a single culture. And that involved a lot of, of um, work in terms of helping us all understand what were common elements of our thinking that we could all circle around, uh, things that weren't necessarily common elements of, of what we were thinking, but we decided we would agree that those would be appropriate things to pursue. And then there were things that were not a part of that cultural entity, and there were people who were not a part of that cultural entity, and those are the ones that had to ultimately individuals and uh, ideas that had to to disappear. And that was the starting point of, of kind of uh, guiding a culture to evolve that ultimately became then, as a leader, something that was actually leadable. <laughs> and, and it was that kind of transformative event for me that, that ended up being behind a lot of of the thinking in the book. And, and there is a lot, as we chatted earlier, about 
uh, arguing, uh, discussion, constructive or destructive criticism, however you want to want to say it. And that's an important aspect of the culture of a, of a team. And all of it boils down to, in some form or fashion, an effective leader has to ultimately make sure that that culture is sustained, it's well-grounded, individuals are actually on board with that culture. If they're not, then they're not a part of the, of the team. And at the same time, leading individuals from the perspective of their own aspirations, their own careers, their own interest in what we're doing. I often say it's my job uh, to, in bringing people on, it's my job to keep them on the team. It's their job to try to find a better offer uh, in the market. And I'm only successful as a leader to the degree that I can make sure that their uh, marginal benefit, whether monetary or not, is greater in this team than going someplace else. And I think it's generally worked given the fact that this team's been together for such a long period of time, uh, despite actually leaving uh, UBS and now ultimately coming over here to, to William Blair, where we felt the culture was much more amenable to our team's culture. That was pretty much it. That was the foundation of all of it. And the rest of the ideas kind of ultimately sprung from that and, and other things that we found important from a leadership perspective over the years or decades even. Your comment about uh, how you see your challenge as a leader was, uh, well, it's, it's refreshing and a very positive way to look at it in that uh, you recognize that if you're hiring smart people, they're always going to have options. And so your mission is to make sure you're giving them the best option. And I think that's a really great way to look at it. Uh, I think a lot of people can take um, take some hints from that. So- yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's it's one of the things that I think on an individual level that helps do that is actually something I learned from my dad. Um, he, he oddly enough, he taught management at a university down in Tennessee. His was associated with management of education systems, uh, whereas this is something different. But one of the things we do often talk about is authority and accountability or authority and responsibility have to always go together. You're going to have good people. You're going to hold them accountable for things. You have to give them authority over those things before you can actually viably hold them accountable for those things. When you give people authority over things and you meritocratically hold them accountable for that authority, that is something that is a powerful motivator in a positive way. People are here, they know they're here because they've earned being here, and they feel like they are an important aspect of a process. They're just not somebody hanging along for the ride when they are given that authority, even if they're young, as long as that accountability goes right along with it, I think it's something that, that does work quite effectively. Yep, I, I agree uh, wholeheartedly. I think people self-sort. If you give them that authority, you'll generally find that people will put themselves into one of two categories. Uh, the category that you want to see is they'll grab it with both hands and it, their motivation and their work effort will just go up exponentially because they feel that they're empowered to do interesting things and then you'll have the other group that will basically take advantage of it and use it as an excuse to slack off and then try to dodge the accountability Uh, but either way people sort themselves out pretty quickly and 
the interesting thing about that is that you're not categorizing people they're kind of categorizing themselves through their behavior and you, you find that out basically by trusting people and letting them have a go you let them have a go at it and hold them accountable for it and if you don't let them have a go at it they quickly become bored and boredom i think is probably a much bigger risk for me with an employee than compensation um often people will take compensation we're not poorly compensated in our industry generally speaking and while many people will move for higher comp generally speaking surveys will show that there are other motivations that often supersede compensation and feeling empowered and not being bored really are the things that that kind of run up to the top of the list and that uh, uh, that allocation or the giving of authority to individuals is really important in in giving that and that empowerment and keeping them engaged and not and not bored where does the job of an investment committee or board begin and end in an investment process um, I'll start with board and then we'll work, work our way uh, to to investment committee generally speaking with a board your primary focus is I believe is staying out of management you're not a manager you're a board member and that involves bringing uh, creating a broad strategy and and bringing in a CEO to make that strategy happen or bring in a CEO who is an integral contributor uh, to that strategy and can actually execute it on a managerial level and the in that sense, you, the board really needs to take a step away from. They're not doing um, the day-to-day decision-making in the portfolio. Similarly, with an investment committee, an investment committee shouldn't be making um, uh, day-to-day decisions in terms of managing a portfolio. Uh, the investment committee is something that ultimately can provide that, that group uh, feedback that I like uh, in terms of making decisions, but it is, I believe, a step removed. And often it's it's um, it's involved with a CIO, a chief investment officer, just like a board would be involved with a with a, a CEO in the way they have a relationship. The investment committee and the CIO have a very unique relationship in terms of of creating an environment where each portfolio manager and each analyst or each researcher uh, can thrive as opposed to sitting around making all the decisions uh, with respect to a portfolio's positioning. You've been in the industry, you said earlier, for 35 years. You've worked with some great people. What traits do good investors share? Um, it's interesting as what you find over time, and it's actually something you can, in many ways, learn or adopt. Um, what do they share? A voracious appetite for reading. Um, a voracious appetite for reading is something that is is incredibly important. And I don't mean reading uh, newspapers necessarily or broker reports, it's reading broader ideas that can have a significant influence on the way you think about investing as opposed to what you may think about this individual stock or that individual currency. Uh, The second thing is that I I believe is important is the ability to create a probabilistically 
uh, calibrated assessment of the future, uh, whether that future is 10 years or 20 years from a policy perspective or shorter term in nature, shorter term in nature from a, a investment strategy perspective in the short run. Um, and, and it's that calibration that is, is ultimately very, very important. And that is something that is a, a learnable tool in terms of, of using uh, an assessment of what else is going on and has gone around the world that's similar to this that helps calibrate and then what's unique about this that will ultimately perhaps modify uh, my assessment of the future and at the same time be calibrated so that when I say there's a 70% likelihood of that something happening, 70% of the time I'm actually right about that. And when I say it's 50%, it's really pretty random and it, it comes out to be random and therefore I'm very, very calibrated. We see that calibration as something that's important and it is something that is learnable. It is, however, something that most people don't learn. The third thing I think is, is very important is the ability to change your mind. As uh, I think it was Keynes, it's, you know, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? And, uh, and that's really important from an investment perspective because investors often get wedded to a decision. They, they, you buy a car. What do you do? You come home and tell your friends how great your car is all you're doing is selling the car to yourself. You're not doing anything else when you do that, and you're becoming attached to it in a sense that is inappropriate as an economic entity, that the type of attachment you would need or want to have as an investor. Those three things, uh, you know, the just voracious reading, appropriate calibration with respect to probabilities uh, of the future, and that, uh, again, is something learnable. And then lastly, uh, the ability to change your mind when, when the world around you changes and not kind of hold yourself, make yourself beholden to some uh, past idea that you, you may have had. All of those things are learnable. They're all learnable. It's just that, generally speaking, investors don't learn them. They don't even try to learn them. They don't even know to learn them. And it's the ones who can do it naturally that find themselves to be successful and the others just never went about the business of, of creating, um, of a pursuing those things and improving those in those three dimensions. What's an occasion yeah. when you had to change your mind about something that may have been a little hard to do at first? Yeah, I think the, perhaps the biggest in my career, um, and one that I think most people can, uh, understand in the industry today was looking back at central bank activity after the global financial crisis when central banks just aggressively pursued ultra-easy monetary policies throughout the developed world. And the first, you know, my training, my understanding of economics, my understanding of monetary theory uh, suggested that that would be inflationary. And if, in fact, something like that is inflationary, the right thing to do, generally speaking, is to be short bonds, not long bonds, uh, to actually have a short position in, in, in bonds. Um, however, one of the interesting aspects, not to get too deep in the weeds, uh, is that we or I 
uh, understand money to be something more of an endogenous thing, endogenous to the system, not just exogenous from the perspective of money thrown at the system. Money can be thrown at the system you know, right, left, and center. However, if there is no credit uh, that evolves from that, there is no lending that evolves from that, it vastly diminishes the influence that that expanded balance sheet ultimately has because monetary policy ultimately becomes less stimulative than it was intended to be. And it's hard to, as I had to do after the global financial crisis, starting out short bonds in the portfolio to say, I'm wrong. Uh, ultimately, I may be right. I may be the perfect stop clock. Uh, but in this environment where credit is contracting in such a way that it is sufficiently offsetting the ultra-easy monetary policies, we're not going to see inflation. And two, the longer this goes on, the more likely we are to see more debt deflation emerging and some of the as or, or price uh, inflation dissipating a little bit. And those are the types of things that, that I ultimately had to say I'm wrong. This is kind of the right way to see it. It wasn't the way I originally saw it. Get out of the short positions in bonds and move on. And we did that ultimately several years ago. And it was the right decision over the last several years. It was a very good decision to say I'm wrong. Uh, the question is now to come back and say, well, when is, uh, if, if ever, when does kind of a normalcy of monetary policy thinking monetary theory come back in, into four, or do we basically have to say it really is different in, in, in terms of, of the way it propagates through a system, through the system as the financial system has evolved today to integrate with monetary policy and create this concept of endogenous money. Um, but that was it. I think that's the biggest one, and it was a tough one to swallow because that's such a, a fundamental aspect of so many people's thinking, including my own, to say that this ultra-easy monetary policy may not be as easy as I originally thought it was, and it may not be as inflationary as I originally thought about it, and there may be other supply-side influences in, uh, that are coming in and also perturbing any potential increase in inflation over time. Get out of the position. It's just the wrong position. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's a great example, and I'm, I'm guessing that you came to that realization after a period of wrestling with it for a while and sort of flipping back and forth between opinions. Would that be correct? <laughs> it unfortunately took some pain. I, you know, I always wish that over the years of doing this, I had enough wisdom uh, not to not to be caught out in, in things like this. But in the end, it doesn't matter how much knowledge or wisdom you have, uh, you're going to do things that are wrong. You're going to analyze things and find out the analysis is wrong and come back and say, oops, it's wrong. And the only time you're ever going to say it's wrong is if it proves to be wrong in terms of performance. In other words, you got to have some pain before, generally speaking, before you're going to jump in and say, oops, I'm wrong. <laughs> so it's a tough time. <laughs> it's a little bit of soul searching going on with each of those, uh, each of those decisions to, to change the way you think. I think that's, that's a very important reminder that at, at the end of the day, markets are um, made up by people and uh, behavioral influences as, as much as we uh, try to control them by using uh, algorithms and computers and other things. They, they're always going to remain a very large part of, the, of investing. And that's 
that's basically why you have a portfolio and why you diversify to create an investment strategy that can survive inevitable mistakes and mistakes are inevitable because we're dealing with the future it hasn't happened yet we can't analyze it like it's happened um, so yeah I mean think about it if you've got a 10% investment with it with a 15% volatility it's you should expect to have down 15% years if that's kind of the annual volatility that you're looking at and that's the type of thing where people don't really understand it's a 10% return but somehow this this concept of, of risk just disappears. <laughs> it's still out there, and, and it's still going to uh, uh, cause some very difficult extremes for people. Definitely, definitely. Well, thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure chatting with you about all things markets and finding out more about uh, the, the early years in your career and what you're doing with Dynamic Asset Allocation. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Dan. Really appreciate it. It was quite fun. I really enjoyed doing it. Thank you for listening to the i3 Insights Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. Thank you.